Welcome to Doctors of the Church. In this fascinating series, Father Charles Connor examines the lives and writings of all 33 Doctors of the Church, including St. Thomas Aquinas, Teresa of Avila, John of the Cross, and Catherine of Siena. Now, here's Father Connor. At the time Catherine of Siena was declared a Doctor of the Church, in 1970, the master of the Dominican order, Father Anacito Fernandez, said, Into Catherine, the whole soul of Dominic passed. He was addressing those words to the entire Dominican order, and he was, in effect, saying that by the conferral of the doctorate on Catherine of Siena, the greatest tribute was being paid to her that could have been paid to her as a Dominican. The year was 1970. She was declared a doctor of the church by His Holiness Pope Paul VI. And she shared that honor with St. Teresa of Avila. Pope Paul VI was really breaking new ground as he designated the first two women doctors of the church. He was, in effect, saying that the women of the church had made tremendous and remarkable contributions. And so many women of the church who made so many contributions over the centuries seem to be epitomized by these two newest women doctors, Catherine of Siena and Teresa of Avila. So first we look at Catherine and then at Teresa of Avila. Siena is a beautiful, gentle, independent, and culturally rich city in Tuscan Italy, which extends over three converging hills. It reached its peak in the late Middle Ages as an important trade and banking center. With its encircling walls, its city gates, which to this day bear their ancient names, its narrow Gothic streets, its elegant palaces, its artistically created central square, its majestic cathedral, and its burnt sienna houses molded together in topsy-turvy fashion, it still retains its medieval character. Today it is, therefore, not too different from the city, the woman who bears its name knew and loved over 600 years ago. Very, very fine description of Siena given by Dominican sister Mary O'Driscoll in her very wonderful life of Catherine of Siena. Catherine Benincasa, as she was more properly known in the world. She was born in the town of Siena in 1347, and she was the 23rd of 25 children in her family. She never was a person who received a great deal of formal education in life, and that is, I think, very significant, because her spiritual writings and her correspondence have extraordinary depth to them. A woman who was not formally educated, as you and I would understand formal education. And yet most of us, most of us, could not reach the extraordinary spiritual depth of a Catherine of Siena. So therefore, education does not necessarily make for spiritual depth. It may, in some instances, even take away from spiritual depth. Well, Catherine had that because she had the grace of God, of course, working within her. She knew from a very young age that she wanted to give herself completely to God, and it's not too unusual to see how she would have wanted to give herself completely to God as a member of the Dominican order. 
first of all, the Dominican fathers really permeated the city of, of Siena. The central church, other than the cathedral, was the Dominican fathers' church. Still is. The, the Church of the Dominican Fathers is a magnificent sight even today to see in the city of Siena. Well, she went there, of course, from the time she was a young girl. Many of the Dominican Fathers were her friends. They were her confreres. She would listen to them preach. She would get spiritual advice from them from the time she was a very, very little girl. So it's not unusual at all that she would have chosen the Dominican life as the life in which to give herself to God. However, she did not become a Dominican nun. Many people have the idea that St. Catherine of Siena was a religious, uh, a professed religious, a Dominican nun. She was not. She was what we call a mantelate. That's a word you don't hear much anymore, but, but for our purposes today, we would say that Catherine of Siena would have been a lay woman who was a member of a Dominican third order. And that's how she lived her life. These were people who actually lived in their own homes. And they would go out every day into the marketplace, into the world, into the big, busy and large, bustling city of Siena that we just heard about. And they would bring Christ into the marketplace. But they lived at home to do it. They were lay people. They were not professed religious. And that is how Catherine of Siena spent her entire life. She never became a professed religious. She was a lay woman and a member of this lay Third Dominican Order. It's very, very interesting to see how the spirituality that grew up about her affected not only her, but indeed affected so many people who were attracted to her. She began to gather disciples around her. They would come to her home. They would pray with her. They would meditate with her. They would go out with her on works of the spiritual, uh, the spiritual apostolate and the corporal apostolate. And they would even go beyond the confines of Italy following her uh, in the great apostolic work which she was beginning to do. She was living in a very, very dangerous kind of a century. Uh, the medieval times were over. The Renaissance had not yet come. The Black Death was a tremendous plague in Europe that had wiped out and had decimated cultures. Uh, the, the morality of many of the clergy were lax. People were living opulent lives they should not have been living. So it was spiritually dangerous. It was materially dangerous. The 14th century was, was not the greatest time in world history in which to be alive, and yet it was the time in which Catherine of Siena was alive. And she did remarkable, remarkable work. Well, she found herself, as still a comparatively young woman, drawn to the political life of the day. She was often asked to uh, act as a peacemaker, an ambassador, between different regions of Italy that were at war with one another. She traveled to places like Florence and Pisa and Lucca, and that's to mention only a few of them. And it is, one suspects, rather providential that she did decide to remain in the lay state. She describes it in a very famous book which she uh, wrote called The Dialogue. She speaks of Saint Dominic, who was the founder of the Dominican Order, and she said that Dominic always prided himself on being an apostle in the world. Catherine said, that's what I want to be, is an apostle in the world. And the best way to do it was to remain, as we said, a mantelate, a laywoman who could engage herself actively in spiritual works and in corporal works of mercy, all of which together would have to be considered apostolic works. So it was indeed very, very providential that she became an apostle in the world herself by remaining in the 
lay state. She wanted to be the same type of person Dominic was. And as far as she was concerned, this was the best way to do it. As one of her biographers put it, she went about the task of preaching the gospel in all the ways open to her, teaching her followers, bringing the message of love and care to the poor and to the sick, proclaiming the good news of God's endless mercy to sinners, counseling men and women from all walks of life, acting as a peacemaker between feuding families and warring states. It is then as a woman of the church that Catherine rendered a glorious, glorious contribution in church history. It was a passionate sort of love she had for the church, and it was bound up with a very passionate love that she had for her Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The description of her continues, For her, Jesus Christ and the church which came into being through him are so essentially united that the church is no other than Christ himself. Knowing the deep and intimate love which Catherine had for Jesus Christ, we are not surprised at the quote-unquote madness, the madness of her love for the church. Like her love for Jesus Christ, her love for the church was something that grew and developed during her life. Now, how did this love of the church that Catherine of Siena had manifest herself, or manifest itself? Well, remember we said that uh, Catherine was part of the 14th century. All through her growing up years, her adult years, and long, long before she was ever born, for that matter, <clears throat> the popes had not lived in Rome. The popes lived in a very opulent, a very beautiful papal palace at Avignon in France. Now, that would be a long political story to get into. Suffice it to say here that the popes were forced to leave Rome, uh, through a series of political intrigues. Well, from the time Catherine was old enough to know anything at all, she really believed it was not right for the Pope to be living at Avignon. Incidentally, you can still go and visit that magnificent papal palace today. You can see the palace where the popes live. You can see the beautiful church. And when you go into the sacristy of the beautiful church, you will be shown a magnificent vestment. And the sacristan, who, whoever is taking you through the church, will explain to you that the vestment was made from the dress that Marie Antoinette was wearing when she went to the guillotine. That is all at Avignon today. Well, in any event, Catherine of Siena did not believe the Pope should be living at Avignon. He should be living in his see, his diocese, which is Rome, the center and heart of the church. And she was determined that she was going to persuade the Pope to leave Avignon with his entire curia and to go back to the eternal city of Rome. So she had her work cut out for her, to say the least. The Pope at the time was Gregory XI. Gregory was a good man, but I think we would have to say he was a timid man. Uh, he was a man who was easily manipulated. He was a man who could have been persuaded one way or another. Well, Catherine got to Pope Gregory XI, and she began to persuade, and she began to persuade with great, great forcefulness. Now, there were many, many cardinals who lived in the papal household, the papal curia. They had a very opulent way of life, of living at Avignon, and they did not want to give up that opulent way of life. They had things very, very comfortable. They thought that Rome was a barbarous city. 
They thought Rome was anything but civilized, and they did not want to return there. So they, of course, were going to be persuading the Holy Father to remain ex exactly where he was in Avignon and to, so that they could enjoy the life they had. Well, Gregory XI thought about it and thought about it, and finally he decided in favor of the things that Catherine of Siena was telling him. And he decided that he and his entire entourage, his entire papal curia, would leave Avignon, and they would return to Rome, and so they did. Pope Gregory XI did not live terribly, terribly long after the return to Rome. He was succeeded in the papacy by Pope Urban VI. Pope Urban VI was a very holy man. He was a very dedicated man. And he was a man who was quite intent on reforming the clergy. And he was quite intent on reforming the life of the papal curia. Because they had, in many instances, gone on living with the comfort and the ease that they had had in Avignon. The difficulty was that Pope Urban VI was probably somewhat harsh in his approach to things. Catherine of Siena believed he was somewhat harsh, but he was a good man. He was a validly elected man, and he was the Pope. But a lot of cardinals wanted to get back at Pope Urban VI for what he was doing. They did not believe that the harshness of the man was necessarily the best thing for the church, and they certainly did not want to give up a way of life to which they had become accustomed. So they decided to contrive a plan in which they said Pope Urban VI was invalidly elected. Therefore, we have to have a new election and elect a new pope. And that's precisely what they did. They elected another pope. Now, anybody who thought about it for any length of time realized that Pope Urban VI was indeed validly elected to the papacy. Catherine felt terrible about this. She knew the injustice that had been done to this pope. She knew this pope was indeed a holy man. She knew that he was a sincere man. He may not have always gone about things in the best way, but nonetheless, he was the pope. And so, the Holy Father knew, Urban knew, that he needed the encouragement, he needed the help, he needed the prayers of Catherine of Siena, and he persuaded Catherine to leave Siena and come down to Rome, which she did. And she took a home on the Via Santa Chiara, which is very close today to the church of the Dominican Church of Santa Maria Sopra Minerva, the Church of Santa Maria over the ancient tomb of the goddess Minerva. You can go into that magnificently beautiful Dominican Church in Rome today, and there you can kneel at the at the tomb of Saint Catherine of Siena. Her mortal remains are under the altar, under the higher altar in that church, except for her head. Her head is kept in the Dominican Church of Siena. The rest of her is kept under the altar, the high altar of the Church of Santa Maria Sopra Minerva in Rome. So she took up residence then on the Via Santa Chiara, and every day she would pray and pray intensely for the restoration of the papacy and the end of this Western schism. As her biographer notes, every day she would go to St. Peter's Basilica, about a mile from her home, where she would spend hours in prayer. When she came home in the late afternoon, she would write letters urging church and state leaders to help bring the division in the church to an end by supporting the true pope. She exhausted herself and suffered so much in this cause that she became seriously ill. 
Catherine of Siena has been described as what we would call a contemplative mystic. This does not mean for one moment that she was in some way an unrealistic person. She was not an unrealistic person. She was a very, very realistic person. And she set about a very realistic uh, approach, if you will, toward spirituality. Toward the end of her life, her experience of union with God was so great that she could pray, you are the fire which eternally burns, never being consumed. You consume in your heat all a person's self-love. You are the fire that takes away all cold. Catherine of Siena's journey toward God was also a journey into herself, which she called the interior cell, or the cell of the heart, where she understood experientially and most fully God's boundless love for her and indeed for all humanity. The central theme in all that she writes is the love of God for humanity manifested in Christ crucified. In the light of this mystery, she discusses the great truths of the Christian faith, the Trinity, creation, redemption, the church, grace, and life after death. She was then a most, most remarkable woman. And she shares the title of Doctor of the Church with an equally remarkable woman, a woman who was not a Dominican, but rather a Carmelite. And that woman, of course, was St. Teresa of Avila, who we have depicted right here behind us, the great Carmelite reformer, Teresa of Avila. St. Teresa of Avila comes to us from the 16th century. She was born at or near the city of Avila in the year 515. And when she was only a little girl of about six or seven years old, she began taking tremendous pleasure in reading the lives of the saints. We are told that as a young child, Teresa loved to be alone so she could pray and she could meditate. She had a picture in her room of our blessed Lord meeting the Samaritan woman at the well. And under the picture was the very famous description from that, from that famous scriptural scene, Lord, give me of that water that I might not thirst. And this was a prayer that the young girl, Catherine, kept saying over and over again, almost as though she were invoking the precious blood of Christ. Lord, give me of that water that I might not thirst. Well, as the little girl grew into a teenage girl, she grew very fashion conscious, very worldly conscious, very much taken up with, with things that had nothing at all to do with religion, and so much so that her father became somewhat worried about the young girl, and he decided that he was going to send her to a convent. And he sent her to a convent where she lived for about a year and a half. It was a convent that was run by Augustinian nuns, where many young women of her age were educated. She did fall sick after about a year and a half, and her father was forced to come to the convent, to return to the convent, rather, and to take her home. She did then, sometime afterwards, enter Carmel, and it's very, very interesting. She went to the convent of the incarnation of the Carmelite nuns and entered there outside of Avila, and she said, there was no such love of God in me at that time that was able to quench that love which I bore to my father and my friends. But there she is 
a Carmelite nun. At a period of time when Carmel needed reforming, you could go to a Carmelite convent in those days, and there was, there was very, very little discipline. Secular people would come into the parlor of the convent, and you would mix and mingle with them and talk, and you could leave the cloister of the, of the Carmel for the slightest reason at all. So it was a way to get away from it all, living the, the Carmelite life. You could get away from it all. You could remove yourself from the world. But at that period of time in the 14th century, if you entered a Carmelite convent, you were not necessarily entering a very, very disciplined, aesthetic kind of a life. And Teresa knew this really from the first time she entered the convent. And she began looking at her spiritual life, and her spiritual life uh, was becoming more and more intense. We quote from a biography. Becoming more and more convinced of her own unworthiness, she had recourse to the two great penitents, St. Mary Magdalene and St. Augustine, and with them were associated two events decisive in fixing her will upon the pursuit of religious perfection. One was the reading of St. Augustine's Confessions, and the other was a movement of penitence before a picture of our suffering Lord in which she felt St. Mary Magdalene come to her assistance. From that day on, she was bent on improving herself in the spiritual life, and she became more and more spiritual. In 1557, St. Peter of Alcantara came to the convent of Avila and had a visit with her in the Carmel. And he declared, and we quote again, nothing appeared to him more evident than that her soul was conducted by the Spirit of God. Well, Teresa in this convent, this Carmelite convent, began to write she wrote her Way of Perfection for the Carmelite nuns. She wrote a book called Foundations, which was for their edification. And she wrote the book that I suppose has made her world, world famous in spirituality, and that was her Interior Castle. In all three of these magnificent books that St. Teresa of Avila wrote, there are specific themes that the reader can find. The necessity of a spirit of prayer in all of our lives would be one theme. The way prayer is practiced would be another theme. And the nature of the fruits of prayer would be yet another theme. Now recall we said that life in the Carmelite convents of those days was not what it should have been. It was very lax. The sisters went to and fro. They did not have much discipline. They did not have much period of mental prayer. They did not have much spirituality. And so Teresa got the idea that she would form a new convent. This is where the division between the ancient order of Carmelites and the newer, reformed, discalled Carmelites comes about. St. Teresa of Avila leaving that original convent of the Incarnation in Avila and forming her own new convent with a few like-minded nuns who wanted a more strict observance of the Carmelite rule. We quote, Strict enclosure was established with almost perpetual silence and the most austere poverty, at first without any settled revenues. The nuns wore habits of coarse serge sandals instead of shoes, whence they are called discalled, and they were bound to perpetual abstinence. At first, St. Teresa would not admit more than 13 nuns to a community, but in those which should be founded with revenues, and not to subsist solely on alms, she afterwards allowed 21 members. Well, she went to Medina del Campo, and she formed a second convent. She went to Valladolid, and formed a third. She went to Toledo, and formed a fourth. 
Finally, she met up with St. John of the Cross, as we mentioned in a previous episode. And because of his intense desire to do the very same thing she was doing, St. Teresa of Avila decided that she would establish a convent of discalled Carmelite men, and she would place St. John of the Cross in charge of that monastery of discalled Carmelite men, which is precisely what she did. And there was tremendous, tremendous hostility to this, to this Carmelite reform. But these people were intent on what they were doing, and they were intent on the spirituality that they wanted to bring about in their own lives, both Teresa and John, and indeed bring about in the lives of any of those who were fortunate enough to share the discalled reformed life with them. St. Teresa, we are told, was certainly endowed with great natural talents. The sweetness of her temperament, the affectionate tenderness of her heart, and the liveliness of her wit and imagination, poised by an uncommon maturity of judgment and what we would now call psychological insight, gained the respect of all and the love of most. It was no mere flight of fancy which caused the English poet Crashaw to refer both to the eagle and to the dove in St. Teresa. She stood up, when need be, to high authorities, ecclesiastical and civil, and she would not bow her head under the blows of the world. That was St. Teresa of Avila. She was 65 years of age when this split in the Carmelite order came and quite broken in health. During the last two years of her life, she saw her final foundations made so that she could look back and say that she herself had made 17 individual foundations of the discalled Carmelite nuns, those who would keep to a more spiritual observance, a stricter, a more austere form of life, those who really tried to, tried to get back to the spirit of the Gospels, those who really tried to center their lives totally, completely, and absolutely on Jesus Christ by separating themselves from the world. Teresa did that by living the life. She also did that by her magnificent contributions in writing. And all the world has profited from that interior castle, all the mansions she speaks of, the ways we can approach God. How blessed we are for these women, Catherine of Siena and Teresa of Avila. With us next time to learn more about the Doctors of the Church here on EWTN, Global Catholic Radio.